I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Islanders country, hello. This is P.T. Isles. I'm Isles Boggs Joe Bono. As we all come to terms with what our new normal is for the next weeks and likely months ahead, we thought we'd offer you a much-needed distraction with some of our favorite Islanders content from previous seasons that many of you are likely hearing for the first time. This week, it's an interview I recorded back in 2015 with longtime Islanders and NHL play-by-play broadcaster Jiggs McDonald on his fascinating Hall of Fame broadcasting career. Here's a hockey life, Jiggs McDonald, Part 1. The Islander 14-game win streak is on the line in the last 60 seconds of country. Moves into the line. Over the line, David Cucinelli. Too deep, he scores! John Cucinelli! 47 seconds left! Islanders country, hello and welcome to the Isles Blog Podcast. I'm Joe Bono. A reminder, you can follow the entire team on Twitter at Isles Blog, and you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or listen at nyislesblog.com. Our guest today spent 15 seasons as the play-by-play voice of the New York Islanders, including three Stanley Cup winning teams, and was elected to the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1990. Although retired, we get the treat of hearing him when he fills in for Harry Rose throughout the Islanders season, and that is Jiggs McDonald. Jiggs, Joe Bono for the Isles Blog Podcast. It's an honor to have you on. Thanks so much for joining us. Joe, the pleasure is all mine. Glad to be with you. You grew up in a small village, 700 people or so in Ontario. When did your affinity with the game of hockey start? And how early did you know you wanted to have a career in radio, whether it be sports or otherwise? Well, the the radio end of it, uh, that that interest was was there as a kid. I think I was uh, probably six, seven, eight years of age when I uh, had this desire to know everything about radio. 
get me to a radio station. I wanted to see how they did things and, and be involved in it. Uh, in high school, we had a had a local high school radio show. I wasn't good enough to uh, to be part of it, uh, but I had met a gentleman there at the radio station who would go to Toronto on the weekends and participated in a half-hour uh, pre-recorded weather and vacation-type show. And he was one of three announcers. Uh, the second individual involved was the program director at a radio station in Lindsay, Ontario. And when I... I guess at the end of the school year, uh, my last year of school, in high school at least, um, he offered me an opportunity in radio to come work. And I said, you mean full-time or just the summer? No, full-time. He said, you want a full-time job, right? And I said, yeah, I did. Um, Got into it. Within probably a little less than a month maybe of uh, being on the air, I was taken off the air. Again, it was deemed that I, I wasn't ready. I wasn't good enough. Uh, and I, I approached it a little bit like a hockey player would if you'd been cut from a junior A team. Well, I'm not going home. Can I play junior B, junior C, junior D, all the way down to X, Y, and Z? Uh, can I go somewhere to hone my skills? They offered me the opportunity to stay at the radio station, uh, learn traffic, learn copywriting, and be a court reporter. I did that, Joe, for probably the better part of two months in that neighborhood uh one evening there was a a little dust up between two of the announcers and one was fired the next morning and i was told to get on the air take his his shift until they got somebody (laughs) and i made sure that they weren't taking me off i (laughs) i approached it a lot differently than i had i guess uh, prior to that and uh, uh stayed on the air moved from that station to another the following may um that The second station was at 10,000 Water. But just before moving, I had the opportunity to do a live hockey broadcast. And uh, I'd always been a fan. I tried to play the game as a kid and not very well, but I could talk a good game. (laughs) And then I uh, got the opportunity to do some play-by-play and recognize that uh, the world was yours. You, You could be as creative as you could possibly be. This is hockey on radio, of course, and you could play a much different game or describe a much different game, perhaps, than was even being played on the ice. But but I enjoyed it. Uh, when I went to my second stop in radio, uh, they already had a sports director, but he left uh, probably eight, nine months later, and I took over the sports department, and we did baseball, or the station did. We did, uh, uh, we did some curling. We did, uh, I think, the club championship golf final one year some high school football but hockey was the main thing of course being canadian and and living in a market at that time i guess maybe 15,000 individuals and the 10,000 watt station we did a lot of hockey and um really recognized that that's what i enjoyed doing more than anything else uh, give me that opportunity so along came expansion in 67 and of the six teams i felt the the one i wanted to apply to was was los angeles <laughs> primarily because of the owner. It had nothing to do with the warm weather or, or the the climate or or Hollywood uh, or any of that. It was the fact that it was going to be owned by a Canadian who had then set Cook. his mark in radio. That's right, yes. He had owned a, a very popular radio station in Toronto. He had owned the Toronto Maple Leafs baseball team, an international league team, 
Uh, Sparky Anderson had played for him, and there were a lot of guys came through Toronto. Uh, I just felt that if anybody was going to be successful with this expansion, it would be him. Um, that wasn't that wasn't to be, as it turned out, but it was my introduction to the National Hockey League and radio, and now television play-by-play as well. Now, Jake, you were one of 118 applicants who wanted to become the television voice of the expansion LA Kings when they entered the NHL in 1967. Jack Ken Cooks, the owner, what did he think about your audition team? What was that like when he's critiquing your work um, as you're getting started in your broadcasting career? Oh, I, I'd set a tape, I believe, shortly after the announcement was made that the league was going to expand. Um, there was no communication for months on end, and then I get noticed that he is going to be in Toronto on a certain date and would like to meet with me. Uh, when I went to Toronto to meet with him, he uh, he was very, very complimentary, but there were several things that he wanted me to do. For instance, uh, uh, McDonald to Westfall to, to Bossy back to Trache. Do they not have first names, Mr. McDonald? None of these players have first names. How big are they? How old are they? You say the puck is in the corner. Well, the arena, as I understand it, and remember, has four corners. Which corner is it in? It's behind the net. Uh, which net? Our net? Their net? Who's on the ice? He, there were there were several things that he wanted me to incorporate, um, which were absolutely great points that he made. Uh, that was on, I believe, a Tuesday night. On the following evening, I think it was, we had a oh, maybe a junior game or a midget game being played where we already had a broadcast line into the arena. So I went down, took the equipment, and went down and, and did the game, trying to incorporate all these things and, and couldn't make it work. Uh, felt just about as low as, as you can feel. Then our next broadcast on air was Friday night, and it was in Kingston, Ontario, and I made sure tape was running back at the radio station and that the, the, that the transmitter, we were supposed to drop from 10,000 to 1,000 at sunset, um, we left it up that night by mistake. Uh, it just, and it fell into place. Everything he had asked me to do worked that particular night. And I was to take the tape the following day, meet Larry Regan in Toronto. He was going over to Rochester to scout an American League game, and he would ship it from there. Mr. Cook would have it in far quicker time than shipping it from Ontario. And he would call me the following weekend. Uh, the following weekend, we had a huge snowstorm and obviously wasn't going anywhere, not leaving the house. And every time the phone rang, you looked at your watch and said, oh, the three-hour time difference, no, that's probably not him yet. Didn't call. Uh, I called, I guess it was the following Wednesday or Thursday, and I still hadn't heard from him, so I called Los Angeles, and they hadn't received the tape yet, which surprised me a little bit. But um, the, the call came, it was the Ides of March, I remember distinctly waking up that morning and saying to my wife, beware the Ides of March. And sure enough, <laughs> it was that afternoon that I got the call from Los Angeles and the job was mine. It, uh, We had gone through, well, he had gone through, I'm sorry, he'd gone through, I think, just over 100 individuals and, and names and audition tapes, but um, it, it, it came to pass uh, on the Ides of March that that the job was mine. 
Now, you were John Kenneth McDonald when Jack Ken Cook hired you, but it was him that encouraged you quite emphatically to come up with that moniker. Can you share how you became known as Jigs and whether or not you really liked the name at first? Uh, no, I didn't embrace it. I'll, I'll, I'll start at that end, Joe. I didn't embrace it. I, I didn't want to use it. I, I understood where he was coming from. He, he liked nicknames. Uh, and wanted nicknames because you remembered it. In fact, what he said to me was that uh, John Kenneth MacDonald was as fine a name as he'd ever heard. However, it had no recall value. And I'm thinking to myself, what, what is he talking about? What does he mean? And he went on to explain, it just rolls off your tongue. You say Ken MacDonald, it goes in one ear and out the other. You don't say, excuse me, what did you say your name was? Um, Ken MacDonald. Now, he, he wanted something distinctive. So we tried tried to manufacture a nickname, and finally he pounded his fist on the desk, and this was at training camp. We had a broadcast coming up, I think, our very first game from from training camp, and um, he pounded his fist on the desk and, and said, everybody has had a nickname, what was yours? And I very humbly, very quietly said, Jigs, speak up, I can't hear you. Jigs, Jigs, marvelous, we'll use it. And, and it went from there, and I said, but Mr. Cook, Mr. Cook, no, no, no. Oh, he said, that that's perfect. That, And I had been. Um, probably from the time I was oh, eight or nine years of age, uh, guys that I grew up with had called me Jigs. And the reason for that was that my father had a kind of a resemblance to the comic strip character in bringing up father, Jigs and Maggie. Don't think my, my mother ever chased him down the street with a rolling pin, and I don't think he <laughs> had the affinity for corned beef and cabbage like uh, the comic strip character did, but uh, I was Jigs. Had never used it on the air uh, from getting into the radio business when I did until that day. I had never been Jigs McDonald. Out goes the memo uh, that uh, our hockey broadcaster will be Jigs McDonald. Well, the first night in Guelph, Ontario, the L.A. Kings, and I don't remember now who we played in that first preseason game, but the referee-in-chief was Frank Cudbury, and I had known Frank Cudbury for a long time, and he comes on as an intermission guest, and, of course, he called me Ken throughout. Well, Ken this, Ken that, Ken, you know, Mr. Cook. Mr. Cook didn't like to make phone calls. Uh, they cost more than a stamp, of course, So, uh, but on that occasion, he <laughs> called. He called, and I was to be sure, I was to put uh, a note in front of each guest that I was Jigs McDonald, not Ken McDonald. We can't have Ken and Jigs on the same broadcast. So that's, that's how it came about, and um, hindsight is, he, I think he did me a favor. Uh, when, any, when, when the phone rings and somebody asks for Ken, uh, I know it's, uh, it's either a relative or a bill collector, Joe. We'll have more of our interview with Jigs McDonald in a moment. You're listening to P.T. Isles, part of the Lighthouse Hockey Podcast Network. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. John Kenneth McDonald, better known as Jigs, is our guest. 
So you're with the LA Kings, you move on to the Atlanta Flames, and then in 1980, the Flames moved to Calgary, and you end up joining the Islanders after their first Stanley Cup, uh, replacing mm-hmm. Steve Albert and joining Eddie Westfall. How did that opportunity to Long Island present itself, and what did you know about the Islander organization and the area prior to that move? Well, I, I knew more about uh, the individuals, perhaps, than I, than I did about the area. Uh, Bill Torrey had been with the Oakland Seals while I was in L.A., and I had great respect for Bill and what he had tried to do there, what he had done in Pittsburgh in the American Hockey League, and what he had uh, had done in the first uh, eight seasons of the Islanders, how he had built that hockey team. Uh, Al Arbor, uh, Al I'd known when he was with the Blues, and then he came, when he left the job in St. Louis, or was fired in St. Louis, Cliff Fletcher hired him. And Cliff always, Cliff was running the Flames at that time in Atlanta, and Cliff always had kind of a backup available in case uh, something happened health-wise, or if uh, Boom Boom Jeffrey on decided he wasn't coaching anymore, uh, if his... Uh, if his French temper took over and he walked out. So Al was, Al was scouting, a special assignment scout for uh, the Islanders, or I'm sorry, for the Flames before going to the Islanders. And Eddie, I maybe didn't know Eddie as well as I knew his brother George and Stan. Uh, George had played senior hockey. Stan was refereeing in the Ontario Hockey League, and I knew them very well. And, uh, of course, had, had been a fan of the Bruins and Eddie playing with Bobby Orr and so on. And uh, was familiar also with Eddie's work. He, had, he was no longer the captain and was on the air with, with, uh, with the Islanders and their, their television and Tim Ryan and so on. And I, uh, I was working weekends over and above the, my uh, Flames work. I was working weekends at WSB in Atlanta, and I was also the president of the NHL Broadcasters Association that year. And it, uh, the Islanders and the Philadelphia Flyers, um, between games two and three, I believe it was, they had the, the Stanley Cup luncheon, as they called it, or maybe it was between three and four. It was a Sunday afternoon at Roosevelt Park, anyway, um, at the racetrack there up, upstairs. And I was to make the presentation, Coach of the Year, to Pat Quinn, which I did. And on the way out, I'm approached by a gentleman that I've, I've never met in my life before, introduced himself and asked me if uh, the Islander television job was available, how long would it take me to make a decision? Uh, boom. I mean, this this is right out of left field, Joe. And I'm, I'm thinking, uh, whoa, wait a minute. This team is on the threshold of the Stanley Cup, and they're going to make a change? This just doesn't sound right. Um, anyway, he explained that... Uh, that Steve had to make a decision, couldn't do both baseball and hockey, and he had decided that he would stick with baseball. So I, I also explained to, uh, to this gentleman that I felt the Flames were going to be okay, that there was an infusion of money coming, and the team would, would be staying in Atlanta, and I didn't think there was any chance that I was going anywhere. Well, within a Probably a week and a half, the announcement is made that, indeed, the team has been sold and going to Calgary. Uh, I'm told that I wouldn't be going. They had uh, no interest in moving a broadcaster. They would get somebody out there. And that same morning, I had a call from two other teams. I called a third, and uh, one of the two calls was the same gentleman, um, Jay Merkel, who asked me now, seriously, 
would I come? And uh, we we talked about it. Uh, we talked numbers. We talked length of. You know, th- this was going to be a pretty serious move for uh, the family. Now we had uh, a daughter in, I believe, grade ten, and another. Susan, I think, was grade seven, grade eight. It, it, it was a major, major situation that we were facing anyway. And we were just at the, the point of leaving to go on a vacation, family vacation. Uh, we were back and forth on the phone, and the decision made, yes, I would would take the job with the Islanders. And uh, the rest, as they say, <laughs> is history. Getting to work with Eddie was uh, was an amazing situation. That was my next question regarding Eddie Westfall. How quickly did you guys develop such great chemistry and rapport with each other? Was it instantaneous, or did it really take a while to develop on the broadcast? You know how uh, the term first love sounds? Or, or <laughs> not first love, but love at, love at first sight? Uh, we, we meshed immediately. It, it I was... I was dumbfounded, really, how quickly everything just fell into place between the two of us. Um, and to this day, we, we kind of look at one another and laugh, because, and this is Eddie's terminology, we were together more years than some marriages last. Uh, we were we were 15 years together in that broadcast booth. They, they put us through what you might call marriage counseling at one time. Uh, they had a I guess in today's terms, it's called a show doctor, but it was determined that uh, we we were just kind of ignoring one another. I, I had heard all his lines, he'd heard all mine, and um, we weren't acknowledging that we were even at the same game or sitting in the same booth. So they uh, they had us go see a, a show doctor, and she played tapes and said, did you hear that? Yeah. Yeah, I heard that. Well, why didn't you react? Uh, hmm. Uh, well, gee. <laughs> we we um, we'd been together as I said just so long that it it was routine, and she just you know made us aware of the fact that we weren't playing off one another. We weren't if we weren't having a good time, the viewer wasn't going to not going to have a good time. We we were there to inform and entertain that we knew, but we weren't we weren't entertaining. We we were just being almost uh, pedestrian in in how we approached the the telecast at that time. Isles Blog Podcast, Jake McDonald is our guest. Now, Sports Channel at the time was very unique as a regional sports network. How did that change your duties and your responsibilities as a broadcaster? I imagine you were doing things that you had previously not done um, for other telecasts. Yeah, we well, we got into a situation. Um, when I was hired, it was primarily to do, um, do the cable and do... Channel 9 games that Tim Ryan was going to have to miss. Uh, yep, no problem. And then within a short period of time, Bob Lawrence was let go, and I would now do radio um, on the games that weren't... When Tim was doing Channel 9, I would do radio. Um, and then we would simulcast. And simulcast wasn't a problem. Uh, we had simulcast, or I had simulcast games in in Los Angeles, and I believe the last maybe three or four years in Atlanta, uh, the eight that I was there, we simulcast as well. So um, it it presented a situation where you couldn't really see or or say, and and this would would be more for Eddie, I guess, than than anything, is that 
Um, look at your screen. You'll, the blue line, you see the guy in the corner. You, you couldn't tell us straight. You could tell us straight, but you had to be you had to be very aware of the radio audience uh, and uh, separate interviews. You had to. You knew that uh, you maybe had something in the can, as they say, for television, and that it was going to run four minutes and fifteen seconds. If you were going to record something for radio, it also had to run four minutes and fifteen seconds. So, it um, it put a little pressure on, but it was nothing nothing major. Uh, I think the, the the best thing from my standpoint was that the New York audience. I was now dealing with a market that was hockey savvy. They, they'd had the Islanders, they had the Rangers, uh, they, they knew hockey. Uh, for the most part, anyway, I wasn't teaching the game the way I had been in in both Los Angeles and Atlanta or that that Atlanta market. So it was a matter uh, trying to to walk that line. You you don't want to talk down to an audience. You don't want to talk up to them. It, it you you you've got you've got an audience now who knows the sport. So just uh, try and encourage any any new audience or new viewer. But for the most part, uh, just just go with the game. Be with the game. So you got to be part of three Stanley Cup winning teams. First off, mm-hmm. did the announcers get rings back then as well? You got three rings? Yes, we did. Yes, we did. I, <laughs> I, I, I can draw you a picture. I can. I think I could tell you what color bow tie Bill Torrey was wearing. He was called to the office. Um, this was prior to a home game one evening. I'd been in the building for probably 45 minutes to an hour. And somebody came looking for me that Mr. Torrey wanted to see me. And that this was unusual. What had I done? And I walk into his office, and he has the sternest look on his face. And I thought, oh, boy. Oh, what have I done? Kenneth? And he always called me Kenneth. And to this day, anytime I see Bill, Kenneth? Uh, Anyway, (laughs) Kenneth, you better sit down. Oh, I think I'm going to be fired. Uh, He pulls open a drawer, and out comes this box. And he said, I wanted to be the one to thank you for everything you did this year. And he he just, he had me. He had the hook right into me, and he opened the box and presented me with a Stanley Cup ring. And I I just couldn't believe it. I I was one of the few times in my life almost totally speechless. I I slipped it on my finger, and there were tears um it, it was it was just wonderful and then the second my second of course the team's third and the fourth and then the uh of course the loss to edmonton in 84 will speak for itself uh sports channel america came on the scene and i got to do the stanley cup final for another four years of course no ring because teams like calgary and edmonton <laughs> and, and pittsburgh were winning those but um the the joy of just being around the, the stanley cup the playoffs, start, starting with the opening round through to the Stanley Cup final, was something that I, I cherished. That was part one of our interview with Jiggs McDonald. In part two, we talk about his lone season calling New York Met games, his favorite memories from the Islanders' dynasty years, his recollections of the 92-93 season, and his thoughts on this year's team and next year's move to Brooklyn. Brooklyn. <laughs> 